message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Good morning. It's great to be here. We're continuing our series in the, the book of Galatians. And one of the difficult things sometimes of, of jumping into a, a, a sermon in the middle of a letter is it's right in the middle of an argument that Paul has been making. So I'm going to kind of go back a little bit and kind of give us some context as we dive in to our passage this morning. Um, so the church in Galatia was planted by the apostle Paul and, and not long after Paul left, some men from Jerusalem came and started teaching a new gospel, the gospel of, of Jesus plus the law. And Paul is writing this letter warning this church that he labored with and, and got started to say, that's not the gospel that I preach to you. It is not the gospel of Jesus plus keeping the law, but this is the gospel of, of faith alone by grace. So our, our passage this morning picks up kind of on the tail end of the argument that we talked about last week um, from chapter three. And I'm going to read this morning, starting in chapter three, verse 28, and kind of give some context, but then we'll focus our time on the first seven verses of chapter four. So you can turn in your Bibles to Galatians four or follow along in your bulletin as I read. Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under the guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but you are a son and heir through God. This text brings up this, this doctrine of adoption. And this is a very important doctrine that Paul is going to outline. But growing up in the church for my, myself, this was not a doctrine that's often talked about. We spend a lot more time on justification and sanctification than we do on adoption. But Paul is saying this is, this is just as important. This is key to understanding what the gospel means. Now, there might be a couple of reasons why we spend more time on justification and sanctification rather than adoption. But two reasons I think of are confrontation or disagreement breeds more conversation. So throughout the life of the church, there's been various views on, on justification and sanctification. Whereas with adoption, we, we're pretty unified on that. And so maybe we don't talk about it as much. I think also in our culture, we like to hit on the themes of good over evil and justification and sanctification both deal with the defeat of sin. 
But the Bible says that justification and sanctification go hand in hand with adoption. They're right there together. So I'm excited to dive into this text this morning as we look at why Paul is making this argument as to adoption being so important, not only for the church in Galatia, but also for us today. And as we work through these first seven verses, we will seek to understand our need for adoption and also the privileges of our adoption. Like I mentioned earlier, Paul is continuing this this argument. We're jumping in the middle of his argument and he's continuing to contrast the old covenant and the new between the era of Moses and the time of Christ, between living under the law and living by faith. Paul has been explaining that the law has been like our guardian, like we saw last week, but now he, he shifts his argument slightly in chapter four He says, he he makes this analogy of the heir as a child is no different than a slave, even though he's the owner of everything. Now it's helpful for us to kind of understand a little bit of, of Greek cultural practice because we don't really practice this concept as much here in America, but it was customary for, at this time, for a, a, a father to, to send his older son, his heir, to be raised and brought up by a guardian, by a manager. And throughout this childhood, the eldest son, he knew that he was the heir and he would inherit everything, but he had no ownership yet. He was under the authority of his guardians. He had about as much freedom as the common Slave. He had no legal or property rights. His guardian kept him under strict discipline. He was told when to wake up, when to go to school, what to wear, what to, how to behave, and when to go to bed. Under this system, the young master felt more like a slave than a son. But it was all for his own good. Nor did it last forever. Eventually, the time came appointed by his father that he would inherit everything, but not yet. And so Paul's point is this is similar to how the law functions in the old covenant. Paul says in chapter, in verse three, he says, in the same way, also when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, a lot of commentators kind of differ on what this, what Paul means by the elementary principles, but our context, because Paul uses under the law two more times in the following verses, um, it's, it's right to interpret this as, this is another way of Paul referring to the law. He uses analogies and phrases to describe the law in many other ways. And this is just one more, that this is the basic principle of how God has operated in the world, the law, the ABCs of God's law. Paul describes that, Our condition before Christ, the condition of every human being, was we were enslaved under this law. We were under the burden of of keeping God's law. And this is what the Judaizers missed. The Judaizers, these men from Jerusalem that came to Galatia and said, hey, Christianity is about Jesus plus keeping the Old Testament law. They understood that they were earning their right to be children of God by keeping the law. 
not that it was actually something that was enslaving them. Adoption is not earned. It is a gift that's bestowed upon us. Paul in verse four sets forth the truth of the gospel that God sent his son to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Adoption is not earned. It is a gift of grace. Paul is, is reminding the Galatians, you're free. Don't return to your enslavement by, by going back to following and living according to the law. You've been brought into a new standing. You've been made an heir. You have received grace. One of the largest movie franchises in the American film industry has, has been the Marvel franchise over the last 20 years. Um, it's amazing that I say over the last 20 years because I think of, I can't believe they've been making Marvel movies for this long. But one of the characters in the Marvel series is, is a guy named Loki. Loki is one of the princes of Asgard. He's the younger son of King Odin and the younger brother to Thor. And as we learn more of Loki's backstory, we, we learn that he was actually adopted. Odin found him as a baby lying on a rock, left to die in his home planet that was being torn apart by war. And as Loki grows up, he, he strives to earn his place. He, he tries to earn favor by, by doing what he thinks a king should do. Fight wars, conquest. And during the Marvel, the Marvel series, there's a moment where Loki is captured by his brother after trying to invade Earth and taking over. And he's brought back before his father. And he's in chains. And Loki kind of laughs and says, I don't really understand what all the fuss is about. Odin replies, do you truly not grasp the gravity of your crimes? All of this because Loki wants a throne. And Loki looks at Odin and he says, it is my birthright. Loki had been doing all of these things because he thought he was earning what was rightfully his. And Odin retorts, your birthright was to die. Loki never understood his need for adoption. He missed the fact that there was nothing in him that made Odin adopt him as he lay waiting for death as a small child. Loki never realized how lost and hopeless and in need of saving he was. He never realized that he needed this adoption. He thought that he could prove himself worthy on his own merit, but that's not the case. So my question for you this morning is, do you view your adoption as something you need? Or do you just think, I'm, I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm okay. I don't, I don't need this gift of grace. I'm pretty good where I sit. We can easily make the mistake that the gift of adoption is something that we're entitled to and not something that we desperately need. 
Paul says we were under the curse of the law. And we couldn't get out of it on our own. We needed this act of grace. Our heart tells us that we are not as bad as so-and-so, so my need is not that great. This leads us to think that we're better than others. We all have the same birthright because of our sin, and that is death. We're all in desperate need of God's act of free grace found in our adoption. Because of this great need for our redemption, we have been given this gift of adoption as sons, which now means we can rest in the privileges that our adoption brings. Paul outlines for us two privileges of what it means to be adopted as sons in these last two verses. And the first is our intimate relationship to the father. And the second is our inheritance in Christ. In verse six, we see that God not only sent his son to redeem us, but he sent his spirit into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Pastor and theologian John Stott said, God's purpose was not only to secure sonship, our sonship by his son, but to assure us of it by his spirit. He sent his son that we might have the status of sonship. And he sent his spirit that we might experience it. This phrase, Abba, Father, Paul chooses not to go with a Greek phrase. He, he goes to his his ancestral roots of an Aramaic phrase. And this is a term of great intimacy and respect. Now this, this phrase doesn't really translate that well into English, but it is similar to, to when a child out of great loving pride for their father goes, that's my dad. This is not simply a statement of paternal acknowledgement. You are the father, I am the son. No, this is, this is a loving, intimate phrase where there's ownership. There's an acknowledgement of the relationship. This is my dad. This wonderful, too good to be true, loving God is my dad. That intimacy is only found in our adoption in Christ. This intimacy allows us access that's granted because of our status as sons. Years and years ago, when I was a young boy, my father, um, on the Saturday mornings that he was not working, we would get up and we would drive about 20 minutes out um, from our house to our farm. And we would, he would take me fishing on the, on, in the pond, on the, in the cow pasture. And I was probably, Oh, six, six years old. And I was very competitive as a child. I wanted to catch more fish than my dad. And we would have this competition. And this is how it would, how it would go. My dad would bait the hook. My dad would cast it out on the water for me, hand me the pole, and the bobber would go under And my dad would help me reel in the fish. He would take the fish off the hook. And I'd go, wow, I caught a fish. And then he would rebate the hook and go through that whole process again. And we would do this over and over again. And I would come home and immediately start bragging to my mother 
how I caught more fish than my dad. One of the intimacies that we experience through our adoption is the work of Christ, the work of God in our lives. God says, I'll let you enjoy it. I'm going to let you relish in the work that I did on your behalf. My dad never went, now son, I caught all those fish. You didn't do anything. My dad was happy to go, the work I did, I give to you. And my dad was a great man, but I don't think he would just do that with anybody that he met on the street, right? That was, that was a special intimacy that he had for his son. And we share in that same level of intimacy and have that same intimate access with God, our father. And that brings us to also our inheritance in Christ. Now, it's important to note here that Paul is not being sexist when he talks about the adoption as sons. In the Greco-Roman world, a father's inheritance was only given to a son. What Paul is saying is that in Christ, we are all made heirs. We're all given the same status as an, as an heir in Christ. The beauty of adoption is that it goes above and beyond. Philip Ryken in his commentary on, on the book of Galatians put it like this. It would be enough for God to release us from slavery, to rescue us from our captivity to the law and to so redeem us from its curse. But God did not stop there. Once Christ had gained our freedom, he gathered us into his family. He went beyond redemption to adoption, turning slaves into sons. This past week, I had the the privilege of of taking a group of senior high students to a weekend retreat called Ranch Palooza at T-Bar M. And our guest speaker, a guy named Bradford Green, um, told a story from the great um, classical work of literature by Alexander de Moss, the Count of Monte Cristo. Um, And it illustrates this wonderful aspect of adoption. So I'm going to share the same story that he shared with us, with you this morning. And so for those of you who are not familiar with this book, on the Count of Monte Cristo, it's about a man named Edmund Dantes. And he was betrayed by his friend and wrongfully imprisoned. And after spending 14 years in prison, he he manages to escape. And one of the inmates in the prison gives him a treasure map. He goes and he finds this buried treasure and is rich and wealthy beyond imagination. And he adopts the persona of this Count of Monte Cristo. And early in the book, after he escapes from prison, Edmond Dantes returns to the town of Marseille. And he inquires about a man named Mr. Morel. Mr. Morel was a kind man. Um, Dantes actually worked for him. He owned a shipping company. And that's where Dantes worked before he was arrested. And as Dantes is, is kind of figuring out, hey, what's going on in, in the life of Mr. Morel? I'm, I'm curious. He learns that he's on the verge of bankruptcy. He is in debt by nearly a quarter of a million francs, which in today's money, that would be about $15 million. 
Mr. Morrell had lost every single ship apart from one, the Ferron. The Ferron was the last hope Mr. Morrell had of, of keeping his company afloat. And Mr. Morrell learns that the Ferron was lost in a storm. He was devastated and he is actually ready to take his own life. But unknown to him, Edmond Dantes uses part of his wealth to pay the debt. And his daughter runs into the room crying, we're saved, we're saved. And she's carrying a letter saying that the company's debt has been paid. Mr. Morrell is shocked. He's overwhelmed. He and his daughter are rejoicing. And then they hear shouting from outside. And they quiet down and they hear voices saying, the Ferran, the Ferran, here comes the Ferran. And lo and behold, here comes a ship sailing into the port of Marseille that looks exactly like his lost ship, the Ferran. And it's loaded with rich trade goods from the Far East. See, Edmond Dantes did not only pay off Mr. Morel's debt, bringing his account to zero, but he rebuilt the lost ship, the Ferran, and filled it with untold riches. Dantes didn't just erase the debt, but he added untold wealth to Mr. Morel. It would have been a great act of kindness for Edmund Dantes to simply pay the debt, allow Mr. Morel to break even, but then he would spend the rest of his life striving, scrounging to get ahead again, to keep moving on. But Dantes went above and beyond and actually gave him more wealth than he lost. And that's exactly what our adoption in Christ has done. That's why it is so important. God simply just did not cancel out the debt and left and leave us striving outside. But he said, no, you're going to come into my family and I'm going to bless you beyond your wildest dreams. And I'm going to give you more than you ever realized that you had lost. He's able to move forward and rest knowing that he's secure because of what Edmund Dantes has done. And this is the above and beyond blessing that adoption brings. So are you, are you striving or resting? Are you striving to earn your place as a child of God? Are you striving to prove that God didn't make a mistake by adopting you? I'm honest with myself. That's where I, that's where I fall. I look at my life and I go, man, I, I haven't lived that like an adopted son should. I I've made mistakes. So I need to work harder to prove to God that he didn't make a mistake in giving me this adoption. But that's a form of striving. That's not resting in the blessing. So if this describes you this morning, I invite you to rest in our status as adopted sons and heirs with Christ. I will close with this quote from Philip Ryken. He says, your obedience can prove that you're a slave, but not that you're a son. Slaves can only say Lord, but sons cry, Abba, Father. Rest in the love 
of our Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this wonderful, vast, unimaginable blessing that you have bestowed upon us as adopting us, people who were once your enemies, people who are broken by sin, that you made us your children, that you have welcomed us into your family. We thank you for that. We pray that we would rest in knowing that we don't have to strive anymore, that our inheritance, our status is sure. We thank you for this blessing. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.